I first met Steve when he was a sophomore at Baylor, right? He answered a, uh, an advertisement for the Waco Climbing Club, and he had never climbed before. And um, I think that weekend we had a trip planned. He decides to come along with us, and um, if you've ever been to a climbing place around Austin called Rymer's Ranch, you know what I'm talking about. You drive onto this property, and it's flat. It's just flat cattle uh, country, uh, mesquite trees, and uh, nothing that would look like a cliff that you might climb. And as, as we're driving, having driven now for two hours, Steve doesn't really know us. He begins to wonder if we've uh, lured him into some trap to dump his body somewhere in central Texas. It's a great joy to be here and a part of uh, seeing this. Um, and we love the Martins, um, and uh, we expect that the Lord will use them greatly uh, in their labors in China. Heather and I were watching, um, I don't know, two nights ago. Actually, I, I came to bed. Heather was in the middle of watching. Um, 48 Hours Investigative Discovery. And this particular one was about um, uh, about mercy killings in parts of the world where that's an acceptable practice, where it's con- or honor killings. I'm sorry, where it's considered honorable in certain circumstances to kill another person. And in this particular situation, it was an honor killing um, of uh, this man had uh, killed his sister to honor to maintain the honor of his family because. She had been violated by another man, and therefore she was tainted goods, um, an embarrassment, a shame on the family, and he describes how he took her out and shot her four times. The interviewer asked him, you're sitting there and your blood kind of runs cold at the way he's describing this. And the interviewer asked him, does does he ever think about his sister? And he just shook his head coldly and and indifferently. And and he said, no. And this is how he described the, the reason he was so cold and indifferent. He said, if you drop a plate on the floor and it breaks, you just sweep it up and throw it away. And I was struck. I was dumbfounded by his callous and coldness. Few of us have encountered such disregard for other people. Some of us have. But we do live in a world and culture where people are regularly treated as disposable. Commodities to be consumed, voting blocks to be exploited or marginalized, props to make our lives more comfortable, to make us look better or feel better about ourselves and my question is what are we to do how should we as followers of Jesus view the people that our world says are disposable discardable cast off like broken plates it's very apparent in the this situation, how awful it is, I think we must ask ourselves, though, for the subtle ways that this is true even among us this morning. How we um, treat people as though they're disposable. And what are we to do about it? Our passage today is Second Samuel chapter 9. And I ask that you turn there and then please stand for the reading of God's word. 
if you're able. Verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat of my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons, 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both legs. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly, dear Heavenly Father, I pray and thank you for this day. I thank you that you have given us your word that uh, corrects us and shapes us and guides us, that instructs our minds, Lord, and enlivens our hearts, that gives us feelings of hope and love and compassion. Lord, I pray that as we see and hear your word this morning, May you drive us not only to believe, uh, but to, um, to act, to go. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the question is, I guess one of the questions is, how do we wind up in, in a world where there are discarded people? What does that look like? And our text um, is centered on David's kindness to somebody who, in all, by all accounts, by all historical um, evidence, is, is a disposable person. 
And, and what we see here is, is very profound. It's, it's unexpected. It's not what we would expect to see from a king who's at the place where he's just been enthroned and is trying to solidify power. We would not have expected him to show kindness to one of the sons of the former king. But that's what we have. How do we wind up, though, in this place? The first thing I want us to notice and look at in terms of Mephibosheth and why um, I've categorized him as disposable uh, is, is um, there's several things. One, we just see that he's an outsider to David. Uh, he's um, been gone for this 15 to 20 years since David has had this relationship with his father, Jonathan. 15 to 20 years he has lived in this place um, or lived outside of David's knowledge, outside of this promise that David has made to Jonathan. We look at that, that promise back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. The other thing we see about Mephibosheth that he's living nowhere. We're told that he lives in this town called Lodabar, which we're told several times. It, it literally means no word or nothing. He lives, he lives nowhere. He's a nowhere man. He's, he's on, in a place that's on the outside, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. He's, he's across the river. He's outside the territory, the place where the Israelites have crossed into the promised land. He's found a place that's nowhere on the other side of the Jordan. The next thing we see is that, um, so not only is he a nowhere man, he's living in a nowhere land. Right? I couldn't pass that up. He's outside. He's in a place that, that, that really doesn't exist in the minds of the Israelites. It's, it's not where you would go to be in the center of, of God's kingdom. It's on the edges, the fringes. The next thing we see is that he is the grandson of Israel's first king living outside this is a pretty radical thing that must, if you didn't know the story, and if you don't know the story, it's a, it's a big thing for the grandson of, the, of Israel's first king to be exiled, to be uh, nowhere and nobody. He's on the edges, the fringes. And I think that in our culture, in a world where we push people to the edges and the fringes, some of the ways we do this, we do it, we see it in ethnic and racial Exclusion. I think more subtly, um, we do it by socioeconomic exclusion. I've heard people say, I'm not a racist. I hate all poor people. <laughs> I mean, they don't say it that bluntly. They say, oh, I'm not a racist. I just don't like anybody that lives in poor areas of my city. We often see people living on the fringes because of their socioeconomic status, what they provide for us and what they, how they serve us. And if they don't serve us, then they're marginalized. They're outsiders. They're, they're disposable. We also see this in religious terms where there's certain people who live nowhere. They're nowhere people because of the particular sin maybe they struggle with. The particular area of their lives that they're, that they're known and their, their outward sin is so that we look at them and, and we, we cast them outside of, of our um, place. They're outsiders. We think that we're religiously pure and right for pushing them out because of their particular religious 
fallenness. Not only is Mephibosheth an outsider, but he's broken. We're told twice in verse 3 and verse 13 that he's crippled in both feet. That, that he's, he's broken. And, and, and there's this image of him being brought in and, and uh, he humbles himself before David and he pays homage. But I want you to get this picture of, in your mind of, of Mephibosheth who has uh, two broken feet bowing before the king. This is no stately or courtly bow. This is a broken bow. Everything about this man, when he enters the picture, it, is, it speaks and declares that he's broken. And you've got to see that you look at your world, look at the world around us, and kings don't bring broken, broken people around them. I mean, if you just look at the people who follow all the greatest athletes around, they're not broken people. They're pretty people. They're people who provide an a, 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 um, example of the status and wealth of the person that they're following, that prop them up, that show their glory. And yet David calls a man to himself and he's broken and there's nothing about him physically that endears himself to David or makes David look good. He's an outsider and he's broken. He doesn't make David look good. It's not glorious. Earthly kings do not bring people around them who are awkward. His position, his status, his wealth, his beauty bring no worldly capital to the mix. Nothing. And I think we live in a world and often we are the kind of people who uh, position ourselves and bring people around us or we, we, we uh, navigate towards relationships that prop us up, that make us look better. And yet somehow in this scene, David has chosen to bring somebody that brings no capital of his own. Not only that, not only is he an outsider, not only is he broken, but he's tainted. Mephibosheth, um, his, his name means either from the mouth of shame or one who scatters shame. So there's no getting around it that this is a man of shame. There's no getting around that, that Mephibosheth brings his own taint and stain to the scene. That everything about it is, is his, whole, his name declares who he is as a man of shame. And that's who David calls. And lastly, we see that in verse 3 and 6, I've alluded to it, but we're told that he's from the house of Saul. He's, a, he's the grandson of Saul, which would have made him immediately an enemy of David. Immediately. That, that throughout the ancient Near East, when you, took, uh, when you took the throne and you sought to consolidate your power, one of the first things you did, if not the first thing you did, is you gathered up all the, 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 the boys that could ever lay claim to being the rightful heir to the throne that you just took over, and you wipe them out, you eradicate them. As a matter of fact, you don't even have to go outside of the Bible to find this. You can go to 1 Kings 15. If you want to see an example of how it's, done in the, uh, how it's uh, described in the Scriptures, or 16, or 2 Kings 10, that the Bible describes this in other places, and yet David does something that's unthinkable. 
in that world. He pulls that enemy close. He pulls him into his world, and instead of killing him, he befriends him. We see that, um, verse 7, that I, I, I assume, verse 7, David consoles. You see that? David consoles Mephibosheth and tells him not to fear. I assume, one, that David sees that he's afraid. Perhaps he's trembling. He's, he's aware of the fact that Mephibosheth is fearful. And the reason Mephibosheth would have been fearful is because he would have known and suspected, at least suspected, what David was going to do. And everything about this scene strikes at the very heart of the world that, can see, that considers people disposable. It strikes at all of those idols and all of those things that, that, that vie for um, power and authority in our lives and that seek to marginalize certain people in order to prop up others. David does something that's unthinkable, un, unexpected in the life of Mephibosheth, and it's completely radical to the kingdoms and the powers of this age. And the question is why? Why would David invite an enemy, a son of a king, not only a son of the former king, but if you know the story of David, Saul spent years, years, Chasing down, trying to chase down David to kill him for the very same reason that we would expect David to kill Mephibosheth. Because he knew that David had a claim to the throne. And he was afraid that David would take over and be heir to the throne and his sons would be left out. Why would David do that? Why would David uh, go against all political, cultural convention in order to show kindness to Mephibosheth? The answer comes in the word kindness. Actually, it comes first in this question that David asked in, in verse 1. Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? One of the things that, that, that David has in his mind in this, this first act really as, his, as a king is this promise that he made to Jonathan back in chapter 20 of, of 1 Samuel. And, and the label that is put on that promise, that, that what that promise is, is covenant. And, and I know we use words in the church and, and they become lingo and they become uh, things that we say and we all kind of nod our heads, yeah, we know covenant. But we don't really exactly all know what they mean. We just sort of use them in this trade of, of language um, because we know they're in the Bible, but we're not sure what they mean. We've got to understand what covenant is because it's at the heart of what drives David to take a disposable person and bring him to his table. So the first thing we see is that a covenant is, is something that binds. A covenant is something that binds people in relationship. It actually locks you in. It's one of the things about um, marriage. And one of the reasons we call marriage covenant. And one of the things that makes uh, marriage safe, a safe place for two human beings. Is because there's a binding that goes on. There's vows that are taken. You're not free in this relationship. You're bound. That David has bound himself to Mephibosheth because of he, has, he bound himself to Jonathan in promise 
back in 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is what Jonathan asked of David. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan and David make a covenant, or it says, Jonathan makes a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. The covenant is a binding reality. And I want to remind us that this is, um, I don't know, 20 years later, uh, Ralph Davis tells the, the, gives the illustration of President Roosevelt who um, gave a speech in 1932 about um, against government, government spending. And f- four years later, he needs to make a speech for government spending. And he's trying to figure out uh, how to deal with this dilemma because he's made this, uh, this great speech about all the ills of government spending. And now he's got to make this speech about why the government's got to spend all this money. And his political advisors just say, told him, this is what they told him. He said, just deny that you ever made that speech in 1932. Right? Just deny it. This is 20 years later. Everything about this could have, um, would have, it would have made sense. Nobody around David would have expected him to honor that promise. They probably didn't even know. But his advisors, his political advisors would have said, David, just deny it. You know, the news cycle, I don't know, maybe back then was, was longer than 24 hours. But still, the news cycle will, will, um, will run its course and you'll be all right. Just deny and yet David takes that vow and 20 years later at least remains committed to it. Because what we see in the promise that's made by David is that this true love is constrained in covenant. And it bounds, it binds David by promise in a commitment to Jonathan and it brings Mephibosheth into its sphere of reality. Covenant also provides protection. Because it's a binding reality, it provides protection. Look at what we see in verse uh, uh, 7. David said to him, Do not fear, I will show you kindness for the sake of Jonathan. David wants Mephibosheth to understand that he has no reason to fear, that there's protection provided in this reality, this relationship. By the way, if you want a good working definition of covenant, it just means um, a bound relationship, a relationship that's bound by vows and promises and commitments. By the way, you can't have a relationship without it, right? You can't, there's no relationship without some sense of honor, integrity, um, binding of one another. Covenant just gets at the heart of relationship. And at the heart of relationship, we find protection. At the heart of relationship, we also find provision. David promises to uh, restore all of his kingdom and to have servants uh, farm his land and to bring the, the... the, the produce from the land into the storehouse to feed Mephibosheth and his family. He also promises to uh, feed him at his own table. It provides for him. Next, I want us to see that 
covenant is bound and moved and is energized by this word that is translated kindness. It's used three times, verse 1, verse 3, verse 7. It's, it's a very important word in the scriptures. One commentator says um, that it's the highest virtue in Hebrew society. This word, this concept, this kindness that David is motivated to show to Mephibosheth is, is the highest virtue that was known in Hebrew society. And it's motivating and it's the context and the contours of what we mean by covenant. And so in order to understand covenant, you've got to understand what this word means. It's translated here as kindness. It's also translated other places, loving kindness. Um, it's, it's, it can be translated um, covenant loyalty, faithfulness. That everything about this, lo- this word is a word that, that is sure and secure. Devoted love, loyal love, covenant love, steadfast love. The word that's translated there, kindness, is motivated um, and motivates David to go after someone who is disposable. That the heart of this dynamic that's going on in the life of David and in his relationship with Mephibosheth is, is, is a, a, a love, a loyal love, a steadfast, committed love that drives him to pursue someone that no one would expect him to, um, to restore. And here's what I want us to see this morning. I want us to get to this. I think often in our circles, when we talk about covenant, um, it, it has become a, um, a theological term. It's not bad. That's, that's not a bad thing. But what happens often in just the natural uh, process of taking a theological term and a theological category is that it, it becomes this thing that we talk about. And as we talk about it, we talk about it and we start turning and talking to each other about it. And as we turn and start talking to each other about it, then this thing that was connected to something else and had this relationship and dynamic becomes cut off. And we just sit around talking about it as if it exists on its own. And it becomes a static principle, a static reality that has, has no real meaning other than an, a concept, a theological category, something that we say we are. And the reality about covenant and, and what drives it, this, this word for loving kindness, this love that's at the core of it, means that, that we've got to understand that to understand covenant, you've got to understand that it's dynamic. That it's a reality. That David doesn't simply um, say, oh, God's a covenant God, and do the, the math and think, I, because of the math and it all adds up, I've got to find somebody. David has moved in this dynamic reality to restore one, to restore Mephibosheth all, back to his, um, all of his wealth and holdings. He, he gives him land that's only three miles from Jerusalem. He brings him into his, his turf, into a place where it would have been easy for him to centralize, gather an army, and lay claim to the throne. And David restores him to a place that was his before all of this happened. Before Saul uh, was defeated, before David was anointed, before Mephibosheth was broken. Verse 7, David says, I'll restore to you all the lands your father, Saul, your, your father. I will give it back to you. It's dynamic. It's restorative. That at the heart of covenant isn't, isn't just a theological concept, but it's, it's a dynamic. It's restorative. It, it goes out. 
The other thing that we see about this is that David um, doesn't... I mean, you've got to imagine that it would have been easy for David to just say, you know, if somebody comes knocking, I'll let them in. You know, if one of Jonathan's descendants comes and, and knocks on my door and says, you know, I have this story in my family that you made a promise to my father and I would like for you to honor it, then David could have said, yeah, I'll do that. But that's not what David does. In order to understand the dynamic nature of the covenant reality that, that David is, is expressing here, is you've got to see that he actually goes looking. That in order to understand covenant, we must understand that covenant moves. It moves. It goes. It goes after. It goes after those uh, that would be enemies. It goes after those that um, are broken and tainted and shamed. It goes after those that are outsiders, that are distant, that are far away. It goes after those who have no, nothing to add to the mix in terms of making us look better. And I think, I think maybe here, I've certainly seen this in, in my short time as a minister, in, in, a, in the place where covenant is used a lot, that often that word is a, um, an isolating and marginalizing word. It's a way of describing who's in. It's a way, a way of making us feel better about who's in. And everything about this is describing a dynamic that moves us out. That moves us toward. Toward people who are marginalized, disposable. What we've got to see is that covenant is not merely a, a theological category that we all rally around. It's not the flag we fly. Covenant is getting at the very heart of the loving kindness of God for all those who are broken and disposable in our world. And if we were to embrace covenant as it's displayed in the scriptures and taught in the scriptures, we couldn't help but go. Now, where do I see that in the text? I, I think David's immediate response shows it. Um, but I, I want you to think about maybe how David got to this place. Why is David so committed to this reality? Why does he do this thing that we would not expect? And we don't have time to turn there. But if you were to go back and look at how Saul or how Jonathan and David come into this relationship, what you see in David's relationship with Jonathan is, is a love that, that has bound them together. They love each other. And what's happened in their relationship, this is actually 1 Samuel chapter 18. Jonathan watches David um, beat Goliath and basically uh, become the heir apparent. He knows that this is the anointed one. He knows this guy is about to take, he's been set apart to take his throne. And Jonathan, instead of getting angry and trying to protect his position like his father does, Jonathan turns over his kingdom. He takes what David doesn't have by birth and he wraps it around him. He gives him his robe and says, 
you're the king. And he takes his sword and his, his shield and he gives it to him in a way of saying, look, you are not this by birth, but you are this by my surrender of them. And we have a little picture, a little picture there of what covenant looks like. Because what we see in that reality is the, the reality that there is somebody in David's life who has given up all position, all status, all value, all worth for his own sake. He's turned over his kingship. He's placed his robe on his shoulders and says, this is you. While this is mine, I am giving it to you. And we're told at that moment their hearts are knit together. And what this is a picture of is the, the reality that God is a covenant God and from all eternity past has not said, I'm a covenant God. He said, My, I am this kind of God and therefore I will go after these people. And God has been on a mission from the beginning of time to redeem the disposable, the outcast, the unworthy. And He does so by a rightful king stripping off the garb of his kingship. A rightful king laying aside his rightful glory. A rightful king uh, uh, setting aside and placing himself in submission to his enemies. And instead of, um, instead of treating them as enemies, he dies for them. He calls them to himself. At the very heart of this reality of the kindness that David is, is expressing to jo for Jonathan's sake is the kindness that he's received from Jonathan and it's the kindness of God himself. It's the very reality of, of the God that David knows. It's a love that found him. And it's a love that finds others that are broken and lost. See, covenant love is, is, um, is a love that, that calls us out. It's not enough to say that we're a covenant community and then exist for ourselves. You can't understand covenant and live in that static world. In order to understand covenant, you must understand that it's the very heart of God to go and find that which is broken and lost. One of my favorite songs um, by the first singer-songwriter I ever really probably listened to, and this will um, maybe date me, um, David Wilcox, 80s. It's called Fearless Love. This is what he says. Um, At the church, they ask for volunteers to make a presence in the park. That's where the wicked plan to demonstrate and carry signs to set a spark. Someone behind you heaved a stone that struck the thin man behind his ear. So now there's blood on, on his sign, which reads, there's nothing here to fear. The wrath of God, someone yells, will punish all of those like him. But if you travel back 2,000 years, I swear you'd hear this all again. Back then they'd say these soldiers walk on sacred ground. This land's our history and our home. They have no right to be around. They are the evil force of Rome. So just how strong this change of heart must be, the one that Jesus once described, 
kindness to your enemies carry his pack an extra mile. And this is the chorus. Fearless love, fearless love, fearless love makes you cross the border. The reality of what we're seeing expressed in the heart of David for this disposable person is fearless love. Fearless love will make us cross the border. We're here celebrating and and rejoicing in the sending out of the Martins. But I want you to hear me say this. When I say that, um, that covenant is about mission, that mission is the heart of God, this doesn't mean that you need to go home and pack your bags, throw a dart, you know, spin the globe, throw a dart, and we're like, okay, we're off. Where do we go? This isn't about going and doing mission. This is about the very heart of who God is, and it's then, therefore, the very heart of who God's people are, which is people who are pursuing the marginalized wherever you are. Wherever. For some of us, this means going across the world. For some of us, it just means going across the street. But what you've got to know is that there are people all around us, all among us, all among us, right here this morning, who need, need others to go. They need to see the expression of the covenant love of God in our fearless love, in our love for them, in our pursuit of them, in our care for them, in our treating them uh, not as tainted goods, not marginalizing them and casting them out, not looking down on them for their particular struggle with whatever their particular sin is, or looking at them saying, why don't you get your act together? I mean, this is one of the ways we do it the most, is we just look at somebody who keeps doing the same thing over again, and we just say, I'm done with you. I've I've had enough. And the reality is, everything about this says that's not the heart of God at all. That God actually pursues those kinds of people with a fearless love. Jesus came and entered the clutches of death for the sake of disposable people. People who have nothing to bring to Him except that somehow He glories and is glorified and surrounding himself with this broken band of people who bring nothing to the table but their outsiderness, if I can make up a word, their shame, the taint of their sin. What's interesting about this passage or this reality is that you should go read this. Go read Second Samuel 19 later. Mephibosheth is completely changed by this love of David. Completely. When David is, is um, on the run because Absalom is seeking to overthrow his father from his throne, um, Mephibosheth uh, can't eat. He finally, they, they're re, he's reunited with David and he, he looks a mess. And David, in suspicion, accuses him of of not being loyal and and threatens to take away all that he's just giving him in this passage. And Mephibosheth says, I don't care. I don't care. Because you're okay. My king has come home. He's completely changed by this. 
I guess one application that we must see uh, from this is, I, I think the fact that, that um, David has Mephibosheth eat at his table, it's very symbolic. It's, it's a way of saying that, that there is real peace between them. Uh, but he actually says that he eats at, at the table as one of the king's sons. But uh, I think it, just a, a, one application of the way uh, this is worked out, this loyal covenant love, this mission that God has called us to in our own lives is what one of my friends calls radical hospitality. It looks like inviting people into your life and your world, to calling them and, and gathering them and welcoming, welcoming them, letting them eat at your table. Just one thing. But Christians who are those who have been gripped by this fearless love of God will pursue those that the world calls disposable or considers disposable. Um, I'll close with this. Um, my wife, uh, if I can brag on her, um, is a very is an excellent decorator, and um, we regularly hear from people who come into our home how hospitable a place it is. But I, I, I must tell you that the stuff that she decorates the house with is junk. I mean, I see it walk into the house and I'm like, oh, what is that? You know, it's this old column from some old broken down house that needs you know, paints peeling off and the base is gone. And I'm thinking, what are we doing with a, a, just a broken piece of wood in our house? We have over our bed, our basically our headboard is an old door with all the windows broken out of it. And hanging as decor from the ceilings are lamps with their shades all gone. Lampshades with the, with the fabric all gone. There's just these lampshades hanging up there. And there's no fabric on them. And you would think, what in the world's going on here? And the reality is, is that Heather doesn't take junk and leave it junk. It becomes decor. It becomes part of uh, the, the setting. It becomes part of the place, the way our house feels warm and inviting because she does something with it. This is what one commentator says about David. After triumphing over his enemies, David welcomed Jonathan's son to his house and table, building up his house with discarded remnants of Saul's house. That's what the covenant love of God does. It takes these things that the world sees as remnants and discards, brings them in and sets a table, and decorates God's house with them. Amen.